welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I have the great honor of having someone on today who is really a real estate legend and icon, especially in the New York area. Someone whom I've met over the last few years and really had the pleasure of getting to know and him and his family. Uh, today, we have Ken Horn who is the president and founder of Alchemy Properties in New York City. Ken, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Michael. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. So, Ken, as I said, it's, a, it's an incredible honor to have you on this podcast. You know, you have an impressive real estate career, having founded your company, as I mentioned, over 30 years ago. But before I jump into that, and we will spend quite a bit of time on that, I would love for you to tell me how you got started in real estate. Well, my background is that uh, I am born and bred New Yorker. I'm from uh, Brooklyn. Uh, and I always say I, I lived in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was Brooklyn. Uh, but <laughs> the, uh, so I, I, I went to uh, New York City public schools and then I went to Brandeis University and then I became a lawyer. I went to Uni University of California Law School. Uh, I was a carpetbagger. I moved out to California became a state resident and uh, went to law school for $600 a year. I guess that was my first good negotiation. Right. Uh, I came, came back to New York and I worked as a lawyer for about three years and realized fairly quickly that I did not want to be a lawyer. Uh, I thought that the education was great and the training was wonderful, but it was a little bit too much of a state existence. So when I was out in California, I realized that gelato, the Italian ice cream, was becoming very popular. And I decided that I was going to bring gelato to New York. And when I was all of 26 years old, I was married. Uh, I went to Italy. I learned how to make gelato. And I raised money from folks at Cadbury Sweats and started a gelato company. which over I never knew that. Yeah, absolutely. Which over a two-year period uh, grew and grew and grew. We have, were providing uh, gelato to Pan American Airways, to Macy's, to Balducci's. Uh, when I was 28, we sold the company, uh, and there I was, 28 years old, married with children, and I decided that I guess what I would do is go back and become a lawyer, which I didn't want to do. And I always say that part of life is pure luck, and I interviewed with a law firm who was astute enough to realize that with my real estate law background and my entrepreneurial background, having started a gelato company, that I was perfect for one of their real estate clients. So as luck would have it, I went to work for a developer, uh, worked with him for about five years. We converted 2,300 units to co-op. He was enormous, Steve Shalom is his name. He was enormously instrumental in my education. Uh, he gave me great latitude with regard to running the company when I was all 28, 29 years old. He was a very philanthropic and, and, um, and uh, globe traveler. So he was probably in the office maybe half the time and let me make decisions on, on um, projects that were probably difficult, but he taught me and it was great. And when I turned 32, I started Alchemy Properties in 1990. And since then, we have moved ahead and we have developed 35 residential buildings in New York City. Uh, we now have also expanded, those are all condominiums, we have also expanded into the office world where we now own two office buildings in Florida, one in Boca, one in Palm Beach Gardens. We own 211 East 43rd Street. We'll be starting our first ground up office building 
on East 57th Street, West 57th Street, between 6th and 7th in about uh, eight weeks. Uh, and we also started to buy rental housing again in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights and Bedford-Stuyvesant. We own about 30 buildings there. Uh, ironically, uh, I grew up in Crown Heights. And again, I say I lived there before Crown Heights had the cachet that it has now. So now our company has about 30 employees. Right. Uh, we've been in business now for literally close to 30 years. Uh, our track record is unblemished. And you know, as you know, we, we are finishing up the upper 30 floors of the Woolworth building, which was perhaps the most difficult project that we've ever done. Uh, we are working on a new development at uh, 378 West End Avenue, which is the site of the old collegiate school. And we continue to do transactions that most people find very difficult and very time consuming, but that's our niche. You know, and, and it's, it certainly is. And I have certainly gotten to know you over the, the last few years and seen how you built your business and, 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 and really conduct your business with such integrity and humility. And it really is, um, you, you are the unicorn in this industry because of the way that you look at a problem. And, you know, I think it's sort of like I'm sitting back and thinking, my God, Ken, you're so successful. And all of this was built on gelato when you start thinking about it. <laughs> well, think about you know, got to start somewhere, as they say. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the one thing which is interesting, and, you know, we do a lot of deals with families and we do a lot of deals with religious institutions. Sure. And, and my partner, Joel Bradcuff, always says that one of our advantages is that we actually are very nice, honorable people. And Absolutely. Sometimes that's an inherent advantage in our business that you've got an impeccable track record. You've never lost a building. You've never been involved in lawsuits with partners or any lenders. And that's our advantage. You know, the advantage is when you sit down with a Baptist church, like we're doing on West 57th street and we're building a new church for them and an office building above it. We do very well with people who, you know, really come from a very strong moral background because we do as well. You know, the key to us is, you know, you walk down the street, you keep your head high and yeah. you run into people. And, you know, if you make mistakes on buildings, you fix them. If an individual needs to call you who bought a condominium unit in your building, you speak with them. And that's just in our DNA. That's, that's really the way we look at it. Uh, you know, from a personal point of view, you know, each one of your successes is, is wonderful. But every new project we take on, I worry incessantly. And we, we have redundancies here in terms of making sure that everything is done well. And I think that's probably the greatest ingredient to our success. You know, it's really funny. I've, um, I have some really dear friends that are developers globally. And I interviewed uh, a dear friend of mine for this podcast recently. And he actually was also a trained attorney. And he said it was the best training ground for him. And he built his, um, his real estate uh, development company, and he's now one of the largest in London, um, really around the same time you did. He's been in business a little over 30 years and started as a family business and then has built really very slowly. And I said, was that on purpose? And he said, yes, because you need to keep your integrity. And it's really interesting that he also credited the law as a great background for him coming in as a developer. And I start seeing a pattern, people that I admire so much, like you and him, that really are doing it. Because you hear, you pick up the paper every day and you start hearing about another scandal in our industry with 
those developers that weren't as, you know, um, didn't have the integrity, shall we say, or didn't have the experience or didn't have whatever it was. And the fact that you're here for three decades and have done everything you've done so well, and as you say, have never had an issue and you've never had anything go wrong. And if there was a minor thing, you fix it. And that's what you're supposed to do. You know, and, and I'm born and bred New Yorker also. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, if, if you didn't, you got in trouble. And so it just really based it on that. But I think to myself, you know, you've built thousands of units. And, and you know, do you ever sit back and just sort of think, wow, you know, it's sort of like my efforts. Um, because of my efforts, there's thousands of people that are living in something that I created. You know, it's sort of like I started thinking about it as from a developer point of view and forget about the business side because you really do care about who inhabits what you've created. Do you ever just sit and start thinking about that? All the time. I mean, the, <laughs> if you really think about it, the odds of me succeeding and, and my firm succeeding doing what we're doing was low. I mean, I did not come from a wealthy family and... Uh, you know, being able to be in a position where I'm building buildings for 200, 300 million dollars yeah. was never in my vocabulary or never in my thought process when I was growing up. So, yes, uh, every day, every single day, I sit back and I say, this is amazing. This is remarkable that, that I am doing what I'm doing and I'm succeeding that, where I am. And you never take anything for granted. You never take your success for granted. And you understand that, you know, unless you keep your eye on the ball, that yep. inevitably you're going to have a failure. And it doesn't matter that you may have succeeded on your last 10 projects. Failing on one of them is not an option. So I, I think to a large degree that because of my background and because my, my parents always raised me and my brother to really have a lot of humility and to understand that you know, success is only a, a, as good as your, your effort and your integrity, that when you, when you have achieved what we have, you kind of pinch yourself and say, yeah. you know, this, is, this is kind of cool. This is really amazing that I built this beautiful building. Or this is amazing that someone is living here. Uh, I mean, yesterday I was at my building at 81st Street, 250 West 81st Street, and there was a woman who walked in uh, who had just walked her dog. And I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the developer. And she could not have been more effusive or happy. Or wow. She could not have been, Michael, do you hear me, Michael? Yes, I can. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was remarkable. And I was with other people and people said, gee, you know, is she a plant? Did you, did you make, was she there? <laughs> so so she, I said, no, I, I, you know, I, I knew the woman's name, but I never really spoke with her personally. But you walked away and you said, you know what? This is great. You know, her kids like living there. A husband likes living there. It was a really, really wonderful, wonderful thing. And, you know, to a certain degree, that's what you do. You're, you're building homes for people and you want to make sure that they're living in them and they're happy. And if that's the case, that's always going to help us in business for the next project that we do. It's that intangible that you can't put on the spreadsheet. When somebody comes out and has that glee about living in a place that you created, there's no line item for that. That's exactly right. That's exactly, you know, we, early in our career, we realized that people who would buy in our buildings would often go to the last building that we built 
and wait outside and, and just talk to people who had bought in our buildings and say, are these guys good guys? Wow. And, and especially in New York, because the brokerage community is so instrumental in selling our units, that if you have a bad reputation, that's going to doom your current project, your next project, your next project, your next project. So from our point of view, it was enormously important and still is that you maintain your integrity, maintain your standards, and make sure that that remains consistent in everything that you do. And you certainly accomplished that in spades. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you, Ken, and say that you start sort of taking a step back and saying, wow, you know, I, I never thought I could create this. And now you're in the position of being the mentor and really mentoring others. And, you know, you were a new professor at the master's program of real estate. How important is now, with all the success that you've had, mentoring others? Where does that fit into your uh, framework? That to me is enormously important. I know that when I started with Steve Shalom, for the first year when I worked with him, obviously I had the basis of, of real estate law, but I did not have the basis of being a developer. Sure. I followed him around like he was the, the rooster and I was the little chicken behind him. And what he pointed out to me in terms of, of how you develop finance, et cetera, was invaluable. So now if people call me and I have the time to meet with them, I do it. I think it's very important that what I know I could pass on to other people uh, because there's a certain gravitas now that I have after doing this for 30 years that, you know, if someone wants to listen, maybe I can help them a little bit. What's interesting to a certain degree is sometimes you meet with younger people and they don't necessarily want to hear from people who have done this for 30 years because they think that they know it. They've either learned it on the internet or they've got different ideas. And I think that's troubling to some degree because you know, respect for people who've achieved something and what they've achieved, I think is one of the key ingredients to learning how to succeed going forward, notwithstanding the fact that technology has changed immeasurably over the last 30 years, 10 years, five years, et cetera. But I enjoyed teaching. Um, I enjoy mentoring uh, and I enjoy sitting down with all the young people here or you know, now my children are in the business. I do the best I can to mentor them. And I think it's a, a, a portion of, of me that I want to make even more available as I go on, not less available. So I think that's really, you know, I, I think that's really interesting because I'm in, in a very small way, I try to mentor as much as I can as well. And I think that there is a, a great satisfaction that comes from that also. But you were just mentioning your children who are now also in your company. And it's still a very small company. You know, you mentioned you've grown to 30 employees, which I still think is amazing with everything that you've created. You still keep a very small niche group. And as you say, you obviously know all your employees, but you even knew some of the people that lived in your building by name. That, I mean, ask any developer that, and it's, it's impossible. You know, I don't, I don't think that, uh, that my, um, my, my developer would know who I am of any of the properties that I own. And I think that that's an, an interesting uh, dynamic with you. But how, what's the dynamic in the office with your children What's that succession plan for you? How does that work? Well, the, uh, my wife and I never spoke about or thought that any of our children would end up in the real estate business. We never 
pressured them. We never discussed it. And all three of them, and now my, my, all the marrieds in actually are in the real estate business as well, although they don't work for Alchemy. The thought process was let them all do something and let them all establish their sea legs in business. And then ultimately, if they decide they want to join up, then we'll discuss it. So my son, Alex, and my son-in-law, Sam, were both uh, commercial real estate brokers. And they came to me probably about five years ago with this idea about buying buildings in Brooklyn. And of course, I said to them, guys, you know, I grew up in Crown Heights. We're, we're not buying anything there. Uh, and they said, let's go look. And we went out there and there were all these kids in skinny jeans and backpacks. And I said, well, you know, let's go buy our first building. And since then, you know, we've grown the company to a $200 million company. Wow. Uh, and they're great. Uh, but, you know, I talk to Sam five times a day. I talk to Alex five times a day. Uh, I'm, I'm obviously very involved in the business. They have their offices on another site, but it's great. I mean, it's wonderful to see how much they've succeeded. My daughter, Katie, who's married to Sam, worked for ABC TV and A&E in media and um, uh, you know, marketing, et cetera. And we had an opening probably about five years ago. We needed someone to oversee public relations, marketing, media. And my partner, Joel, said, why don't we bring in Katie? And we did, and she's been unbelievable. And recently, my son, Jed, who uh, was a retail broker, uh, approached us a little while ago and said, you know, I think I want to make a change in the development world. And we spoke for about six months and he joined us a couple of months ago. So it's great. It's really wonderful to see that, you know, really four of them, uh, if you include my son-in-law, Sam, are all involved in alchemy-related ventures. Uh, of course, I warn them to a certain degree that, you know, they've got to work even harder because there can't be the perception that the only reason they're here is because they share a common, uh, you know, last name with me and they have great work ethics. And I attribute that both to my wife and I in terms of the way we raise them. They, they have no sense of entitlement whatsoever. They all work very hard. They all want to create their own successes and their own niche. And from my point of view, I think it's wonderful. The fact that there'll be uh, folks with my surname being in a position where, you know, they'll take over the business if and when I ever decide to retire uh, and move on. That, of course... It's going to be many, many, many years from now because, <laughs> because this is in my blood. You know, real estate people don't retire. They don't necessarily slow down. Uh, you know, we love the chase. We love the game. We love the, the intellectual chess match that goes into every development. And to a certain degree, um, you know, the, the, I can't imagine not doing it. I just I really enjoy it. You know, I, I'm going to just um, reiterate something that you were saying about your children in the business. And, you know, I've met your your family, as you know, and um, every time that I have sat with um, one of your children or, or your son-in-law and had a conversation independent, whether you were even in the room or not, your name never came up. It was the idea that they have a role in your organization. And if I didn't know that they were related to you, nobody else would either. And I think that that's a huge compliment to you and Margie and the fact that, you know, you actually built this wonderful company and you raised your children, as you said, to have a, a love of real estate. It was all around them. 
Um, but really, they got their business acumen and come in and are a value to your growth. The story that you just said about your um, your your son coming in and pitching you on the commercial aspect for going back into Crown Heights, and now it's a $200 million business. I think that's beautiful to see now the synergy that comes in from that younger generation that is, to your earlier comment, is, is actually not only respecting your, your vision and your background and your experience, but really exalting it and taking from it. So I think that that dynamic that you've created is just a beautiful thing to see and witness. So we, we do it not only with, obviously, our children, but we hire a lot of young people. Yes, I know. A lot of young people we hire, we've hired them out of college. They, they knew nothing. We trained them. They've been here for years. People don't leave. But what I like to see in our meetings, we empower all the young people. I remember very clearly that when I worked for Shalom, I was in a meeting once, and I was probably, you know, my late 20s, and he said something which was not accurate. He, and it was just not accurate. And I corrected him in the meeting. I said, you know, Steve, that's not right. This is really the way it is. And after the meeting, he took me aside and said, don't ever do that again. Don't ever correct me in a meeting. I could never appear to be not in charge or not all knowing. And it was an epiphany at the time. I remember thinking, if I ever have my own company, that's the last thing I would want. And I, I want people to critique me. I want people to tell me if I'm right, tell me if I'm wrong, tell me if they have different opinions. So we could be in a meeting with 10 of us. And I don't care if someone's been here for two weeks or 10 years, everyone's entitled to their opinion, especially from my point of view, the younger people, because the younger people come from a perspective that I will never be able to have because they were brought up differently, their influences are differently. And I want as many opinions as possible and as many criticisms as possible because all it's gonna do, it's just gonna enhance my ability Absolutely. Where my company gets better. Absolutely. But I remember Absolutely. that day. I remember that day very, very clearly saying, hmm, boy, you can never let your ego get the best of you when you when you're running anything, because that's ultimately going to be your doom. That is something that we just see over and over again where the ego takes control. But I think that is just amazing. Well, listen, I want to get into some of your projects. We've spoken about some of the projects that you've been doing, but the one that is just, you know, extraordinary to me, and I want to just spend some time in chatting about this. As I mentioned, I'm also a native New Yorker, and um, one of the most iconic buildings, not only in New York, but in the world, was the Woolworth Tower. And the Woolworth Tower was the tallest building in the world at one point, and had this amazing history. And I remember as a child, just coming in and staring at this amazing edifice. And now you actually took this project over. You took the upper floors of this historic building. You created these spectacular residences. I wanna know how Ken Horn decides, I'm going to sort of take on the Woolworth building. How does that even, how does that fit into your psyche? That is an incredible vision, Ken. I want to hear the story. Well, we were approached by uh, a group, an investment group of ours in, um, in Boston, who had been approached by two individuals who had looked at the Woolworth building 
to potentially take the upper 30 floors, which had been vacant for 10 years, uh, and make them into office. And uh, we went and looked at it really as a favor to our friends up in Boston. And we went down there and we looked at it and we said, nope, this is not going to be an office. This is going to be a boutique, spectacular residential building. And we convinced our partners, BlackRock, our lenders, HSBC, that our vision was correct. And we signed a contract and closed in 44 days. Now, 44 days. Now, remember, wow. this, this was not just like buying a building. Sure. Because, because we don't own the lower portion. We only own the upper portion. Right. We had, to, we had to create two condominiums. We had to have bylaws. It was a gaggle of lawyers putting this together. And we closed. And I remember the day we closed. Uh, I think the offices were down downtown. And it was uh, in September. A beautiful day and I walked outside it was a two or three day closing and the first thing I saw was the building and like you I always looked at this building as being just spectacularly gorgeous an iconic building in New York almost like a sandcastle that you just can't build anymore um, and I was overwhelmed with the responsibility because it's not only the responsibility of gee you know I just spent you know 68 million dollars buying a building but the responsibility was, how do I make this work? And equally as important, how does one build a building and how does one renovate it in a manner that respects the architecture, but is also modern enough that's going to attract current buyers? So over the next 11 months, we put together a great team of landmark consultants, historical consultants, architects, designers, and we knew immediately that what we did not want to do was to create cookie cutter units. We knew that we wanted to create units that were grand in scale, that would allow people to exhibit their artwork and would almost create something that can't be duplicated, not only in New York, but you know, around the world. You just can't build a building like this again. So it's been a long process. It's been a five and a half year process because we had landmark constraints, uh, you know, we, we got approval to build two additional spaces called the pavilions, which are spectacular. We got approval to, you know, build this spectacular pinnacle by putting light and air in, which is a true castle on top of a building. We got approval to change 3,500 pieces of terracotta, change the windows. And it's been a very expensive endeavor and very hard project because, again, going vertical through space that you don't own in terms of building the space was a true challenge. Couldn't put a hoist outside the building. If you did, you, you kind of ruin half the terracotta. Wow. But it, it just turned out spectacularly. I mean, I was down there last night at sunset and the, it was a beautiful sunset last evening and the views from every single floor are overwhelmingly gorgeous. They are, they are east to west. Hudson to the East River, you know, looking at the Statue of Liberty, just all these amazing capabilities that have been opened in terms of your living. And it's just, it is beautiful, just beautiful. And the, and the folks who live there understand that what they bought is a very limited supply of apartments that can't be duplicated. You know, it's almost as if you had an artist who did 32 prints and these things are worth 
millions of dollars, that's exactly what you're buying when you're buying in the Woolworth building. That is absolutely true. I have seen this project over those that period of time from the very beginning. Here's one of the things that really is really intriguing for me, Ken. You, um, and I don't even think you even sort of like know when you say it, but as you were saying that, I was taking notes, you were saying, as soon as I closed, I realized I had a responsibility to the building. And that really encapsulates who you are and what your vision is. You said you needed to respect the architecture of the building. You felt a huge responsibility to this. And I have to tell you, everyone that walks in there sees it. Everyone who is, even what you're, what you're creating, almost like a membership club. You have a limited number of these units that are selling incredibly well. You are now actually creating this um, grouping of individuals from various sectors that are the top in their field. And what you are creating, as I'm seeing the buyers that are coming into this project, they're appreciating your vision, they're understanding what you've offered them at great value, I might say, um, compared to everything else that is available and the amount of space that there is, the originality of each of those units Everyone walks in, the high ceilings, the idea of you coming in and replacing the terracotta, finding the artisans, the details do not go wasted. And you've created a masterpiece as you walk in for the backdrop of what is the most dramatic views in New York City. I, that I, really I would agree. And you know, the, the lobby, for instance, we took the ceiling tiles from Frank Woolworth's original office. We restored wow. them and we use them as the, the ceiling tiles in the lobby. There is no one who would have, who would have done that. I mean, it cost no us a fortune and it was just, we found this artisan from Canada who we brought down to New York and he took everyone down in his office, cradled it like it was a newborn, bathed it in this combination of baby shampoo and sea kelp, refinished them and refurbished them. <laughs> it was and the surrounds around the elevators with the original surrounds in the Woolworth building the pool that we did we found Frank Woolworth's original renderings what the pool looked like and tried to duplicate it uh, so everything we've done in the building we echo the history of the building but we made it contemporary as well because that's the way people live so absolutely I think, so I think of all the buildings that we've done uh, you're always proud of what you do but this brings the whole concept of, of pride to, to, a, to a new level, period. It is. And, you know, and, and, and it just so shows. And, you know, I want to talk about the pinnacle for a second. And for the listeners, I just want them to take a second and Google the Woolworth building and look at the upper portion of it, everything in the building that they'll see in green when they start looking at the photos that they start when they start doing when you start talking about what is a seven story unit and can i travel around the world as you well know 200 days on average in any given year about 80 percent of that travel is international i have seen some spectacular 
properties as in, in my career. Um, but I must tell you that this is the most unique property I've ever seen. This is something where I remember seeing this as a construction site years ago. Um, and I got up to that 360 degree viewing deck and you start thinking about it as, as that kid that I mentioned looking up at this building and now you're on that deck and you're walking around and you literally feel like you own New York City. The, when we bought the building, the pinnacle uh, was, it used to be an observation deck. It actually had a very small elevator in it, which, uh, which obviously was, was not working when, when we bought it. But ultimately, the pinnacle needed landmark approval because it did not have windows. And I, I think now it's got 132 windows. Uh, I should point out that when we went before landmarks for approval, not only on the pinnacle, but on the pavilions and on the building, we got unanimous landmark approval. And considering the gravitas of this building, it just shows you how careful we were in terms of what we did. But the pinnacle is really the only castle that exists in New York. And you know, most people equate castles with being on the ground. This castle is in the clouds, it's in the air. It's yep. 700 feet up in the air. And you literally feel like you are on the top of New York City. Uh, it's an astounding space. It is not duplicatable anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. the end. And we always say that there are some gorgeous, beautiful, glass skyscrapers in New York, which boast penthouses and panoramic views, but there is nothing that could be called a castle. And this is a castle. And what we've done is we've allowed a potential buyer. So true. You know, we've allowed, a potential buyer is gonna come in here and they're going to sculpt their castle in a way that's unique to what their desires are. But the, the volume, this is a volumetric space as opposed to a linear space which allows people the ability to create something that's impossible to duplicate anywhere and that is so true i mean you know i always sort of said this is where this is where bruce wayne would live is <laughs> the idea of you know the perfect thing that and i think that that is interesting it's the idea of having a castle in the sky and that is the most accurate description of what this is? Uh, I, I think one could describe it in many superfluous and, and beautiful tones and expressions, but to truly someone has to see it to really understand it. And what we did is we hired two very distinct architects uh, uh, you know, to, to envision what it would be to live there with two very different distinct styles. So if someone is indeed interested in seeing it, we've taken the liberty of addressing two potential methods of designing it, of laying it out, which are, are very different. That one of them is kind of a modernist approach, the other is a more traditional approach. Will someone embrace either of them, perhaps? Or will someone kind of mesh the two, maybe? But we believe that the person who's gonna ultimately buy this will surround him or herself with the talent to really understand what one has here to be able to develop it in a manner that makes it even more unique.
So are those uh, renderings and interpretations available online in case somebody wanted to jump in and see what they were? They are, yep. So if somebody wants to see it, uh, there's a whole methodology of getting into the, uh, the Pinnacle website so people could actually see what it looks like, what it looks like. What I'll do is that I'll add that link to this podcast for those that are interested. Um, but I wanted to ask you, I want to go back to your family for a moment. And you have my know well, and we've, uh, we've traveled and sort of been to a few places together, which has been terrific. And you mentioned your children, that some of them work in your company. And you know, to me, it's it's really interesting because I see you and I see you're incredibly successful, and your family is just you have this beautiful family unit. How well, do you, you balance that work life so flawlessly? I mean, it really does seem like it's just effortless for you and Margie. Well, I I think that from an early age, my children realized that I wouldn't say I was tethered to my phone, but that. You know, I was responsible for, you know, answering questions really all the time. And, you know, but I also, they also understand that when I was with them, I was with them. Yeah. And I could turn things off pretty easily. I mean, I coached, I cannot tell you how many basketball and soccer and baseball games in my life. Sometimes well, sometimes not so well. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, but I, and all three of my children, I did that. Uh, all three of my children, you know, played uh, high school sports. I attended all their events. My son, Alex, was a, a competitive runner in college. We tried to see as many races as we could. But your family is always your priority. And you know, now my family has expanded because two of my children are married. Uh, my third child is getting married in May. Uh, I have three grandchildren, two years and, and younger. We just had one 11 weeks ago and one three weeks ago. Congratulations. And thank you. And, and it's, it's amazing. It's amazing when your children have children. It's amazing when your children have found spouses that they will be with forever. It's, it's a joy. Uh, I will tell you, it goes by in a blink. And Margie and I are both aware of that. Uh, and so we are trying to appreciate and we do appreciate everything that we have uh, in terms of our family and they're all healthy, thank goodness. And you just can't lose your priorities. I mean, your priority has to be, you know, your, your family is wonderful, your grandchildren are great, uh, you're healthy, you've got a great relationship with your spouse. Uh, in, in real estate business, people tend to always think that they should be making more and building more. You know, if someone is worth 100 million, they're covetous of someone who's worth 200 million. The person who's worth 200 million is covetous of someone who's worth 300 million. If you've built a 200,000 square foot building, you've done it successfully. Why not build a 400,000 square foot building? I don't think that way. And my partners don't think that way. You always have got to take a deep breath and realize what's important. Yes. And your level of success, if it's good for you, then that's fine. But you're not competing against people who may or may not be more successful. All you really wanna do is make certain that you're happy, the people who work for you are happy, you've created a good work environment, and your life and your children are happy. It's kind of reducing things to really simple items. and really just take a deep breath. I mean, as we said from the beginning of this interview, if someone would have told me that here was a kid who was, grew up in Flatbush in a attached house that was 17 by 35, 
you know, that I would have what I have now in terms of uh, you know, financially, my family, uh, and, and have built what I've built, I would have never believed it ever in a million years. So I am never, ever, ever going to take for granted what I have in terms of my family or my business because it's far exceeded any expectations that I ever had when I was growing up. And it's your humility that I think is one of the greatest secrets to your success. You remain so humble, Ken, and it's always just wonderful to be with you at events, at dinner. It's, it's, it's also interesting to see how um, you, you, when you start sort of studying people, you treat everyone the exact same way, whether it's the person that's being honored at a gala dinner we're at or the waiter that's bringing you the entree. No one gets a different level of service from Ken Horn, and it's beautiful to witness that. Well, thank you. I mean, look, we have a we have a rarity in that, Ken, and it really, you know, I, I can't either. I'm here, yes. Michael, you there? Hello? Michael? I'm here now, I can hear you now. Yes, okay. I've lost you for a moment, we're back. Okay, good. Uh, I know that you know we have a crew of guys who work for us who really handle all the general conditions, you know, throwing out garbage from sites, sweeping, et cetera. They get treated the same way that our project managers do, that my partners do. They're equally as valuable to us. Uh, and you always treat people the same way. Absolutely, right? and you certainly do. Well, thank you. I wanna talk a little bit about your philanthropic work. I know that you are a board member and a former president of Catalog for Giving. It's a nonprofit that distributes funds for after-school programs. Tell me how you got involved with that and what it means to you. And I know that you support many other charities. So tell me about your philanthropic efforts just in, in, in general and why that's important for you. I know that we talked about just giving back throughout this interview. But tell me what that's about for you. Well, I know that uh, you know every year when you sit down and you, you review what you did financially, I think last year Margie and I gave to 28 different charities. Uh, but wow. the, the one that I am most involved in is the Catalog for Giving. Uh, and I've been involved probably for the last 10 to 12 years. I was president for about seven years. Uh, and now I'm just on, I am still on the board. I'm on the executive committee. But after seven years, I gratefully allowed someone else to take take the position but when i started in my presidency we raised about seven hundred thousand dollars a year and when i concluded we raised two million four wow so so wow. the so the purpose of the charity is every three years we um, take on between 15 and 16 programs in new york city that provide assistance to really uh, uh, groups that need and provide assistance to the underserved kids of New York. It could be groups that work with transgender children who are thrown out of their, their homes. It could be groups that work with children whose parents are incarcerated. It could be groups wow. that work with different theater groups 
uh, that provide academic assistance to kids in poor neighborhoods that don't have it, college training, uh, basketball programs that take young athletes and provide them with both academic and athletic support. So this is something that I think is phenomenal. You know, because I grew up in, in a neighborhood that, and in an area that was, you know, primarily middle class, lower middle class. And I went to high school, an 8,000 person high school, where I saw kids from all different levels of poverty. No one was affluent, of course, but it's always stuck with me that, you know, to whom, who is, to those who are given much is expected. Mm. And, and this is something that is very near and dear to me. Um, and I think it's a phenomenal group. Uh, it's primarily real estate now. Again, when I started, we had 11 people on the board. Now we have 26. And of those 26 people, probably 21 are real estate related and people I help bring in. So, you know, I'm proud of the fact that we've expanded so much and we're going to expand even more because now we have fundraisers who are going to be out there talking to people who I don't know. But it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful charity. Every year we have an event and we have, I think this year we had 800 people attend. And the, the highlight is not the fact that it's a real estate centric event. The highlight is that every year we get to hear from the children yes. and, and what these programs have done for them <clears throat> and how articulate these young, these young children are between the ages of 10 and 17, where they could stand up there, talk about their lives, talk about the difference that the programs made. It's phenomenal. And uh, as long as the program is around, I will, I will be involved. That's just amazing. And I have one final question for you, Ken, and I asked this for many of the guests that are on the, the podcast. And you probably answered this in many ways already throughout our conversation, but what's the legacy that you'd like to leave? Well, I, I think the legacy for my, for my company is that we always developed property that was creative, well-crafted, well thought out, and really added to the fabric of the communities where we developed. And that we were smart, decent, honorable people who respected everyone we work with. From my family, I think I probably want the same thing, that, uh, that what Marge and I have been able to do is, you know, is raise a family where our children and their spouses are, are good people, that they all give back, they all do charitable endeavors, and they've been doing that at a very young age as well. And that regardless of their successes, be they independent or through the alchemy channels, that they maintain a certain humility as well, because I think that's important. So, you know, you, you kind of sit there and you look around and you say, gee, you know, I've got all these folks who work for me, my family has expanded, and you hope that that just continues. Um, and that, and that what you've really taught the people who work for you and taught your family remains intact as they go on moving forward. Ken, I must say, it is, um, it, it's always a pleasure to see you and Margie and your family. And every single time that I spend time with you, I always just leave with a smile. And in the time that we have spent today, I understand a great deal more as to why. And you are really an incredible leader in our industry. And 
and a spectacular human being. And it really is such a pleasure to know you. And I must give you just great thanks for your time today, knowing as busy as you are, and for sharing your story. So thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, Michael. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, for the folks who are listening, enjoy the conversation. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for listening. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you again. Thanks, Michael.